This is Are We Europe, the podcast for changing continents. We ask the small questions and get the big answers. We dive into all things European cultures and identities and bounce all over the continent. It's about the places and people that come to life in sound-rich stories. Readouts from our print magazines, episodes from one of the amazing podcasts in our podcast family, or intimate behind-the-scenes interviews with our favorite storytellers and Europe's most talented creators. We got it all on this channel. It's Europe, streaming right in your ears. Are we Are we on? Are we, are we Europe? What the truth is and how it should be told. I think there are a lot of borders to be broken. You can build it together. Community. And I believe in Josh. Open minds, open borders, openness. Try to make Europe sexy with all senses. Are we? Are we? Are, are we, we Europe? Europe? <laughs> what up? Are we Europe? Boom. Hey there, and welcome to Are We Europe Readouts. Today we're reading a story from our latest print magazine, The Sports Issue. For some, sports is the stuff of nation-building, flags and hymns, blood, sweat and tears. To others, it is simple entertainment. What can sports tell us about who we are? The Generation Game. When the Dutch national football team painted the continent orange in 1988, Europe was already looking forward to a brighter future. By Kit Holden, read by Andrei Popovicu. The whole place was upside down. The furniture was flying around. Behind the bar, the landlord let his emotion get the better of his business sense. Free beer for everyone. The drinkers were already streaming out of Café Van Heer and onto the Locht in Veldhoven. Horns blared. People danced on top of cars. A quiet suburban town in the southern Netherlands, Veldhoven is not a place where people usually dance on top of cars. But on the 21st of June 1988, the Dutch national football team beat West Germany into a semi-final of the European Championships. And that changed everything. Time completely stopped in that moment, says Bas Lepelars, who was 17 years old at the time. You would be rolling around on the floor, and then you'd wake up, and it would be five minutes later, and you'd think, bloody hell. Bas was at Café Van Heer with his friend Jake Jacobs. On any normal day, they would have watched the football at home. But this was no normal day. On pub TV screens in Veldhoven, they watched the as, Almost 500 kilometers away in Hamburg, Dutch star striker Marco van Basten scored a late winning goal to beat Germany in their own backyard and send the Netherlands to the final. With one swoop of his right leg, van Basten didn't just make history, he defeated it. Back then, Germany was the arch enemy, Bas recalls. It was completely natural, nobody doubted that you would hate them. It was a combination of how hateable their players were, the lost final of 1974, and the war. In 1974, the greatest Dutch team of all time had been beaten by West Germany in the World Cup final in Munich. Fourteen years later, they returned to Germany under the same coach, Rinus Michels, and won the European Championships. To this day, it remains their only major title, yet it is not so much the final that everyone remembers as the semi-final. The cathartic victory over the Germans in Hamburg was worth more than the trophy. It was revenge. Is football war, as coach Michels once said? Was football war on that evening in 1988? The Dutch journalist Paul Okenhout, who was in the stadium in Hamburg as a fan, remembers crying as he applauded the players after the match. My father told me that the celebration reminded him of the parties that had happened when the Germans left in 1945, he says. Years afterwards, Okenhout wrote about the game as one of the defining moments in post-war Dutch history, as well as a revelatory moment for him personally. Okenhout was born in 1958, into a Europe still defined by its experience of war. 
the nascent European project had been conceived as a guarantor of peace, and the Iron Curtain divided a continent forever on the brink of conflict. Only after the 21st of June 1988 did I realize that I had been born just after the war and not, as I had previously thought, a long time after it ended, he wrote. Only then did I realize that 13 years was not an eternity. Yet, as well as bringing back the memories of war, 1988 also marked the end of this Europe. The Berlin Wall fell a year later, and a new generation emerged, unburdened by the trauma of the past. For those born in the 1980s and the 1990s, Europe was not a precarious compromise or a peacekeeping measure. With its open borders, integrated laws, and cheap travel, it was basic freedom. The period when the first millennials were born and the Cold War ended was also the era when the Erasmus program and the Schengen Agreement came into being and when the common transport policy began to liberalize the aviation market, paving the way for the rise of budget airlines. When Dutch teenagers Bass and Jake watched Van Basten sink Germany in Hamburg, they did so in a changing Europe. It was also a time when the Netherlands were crowned European champions, and Dutch teenagers Bass and Jake traveled to Germany in a little brown Peugeot. Bass and Jake had a foot in each generation. They were far too young to remember the war, but they knew the stories of blackouts and bicycles confiscated by the Nazis. During the summer of 1988, they laughed at Dutch TV comedy duo Harry Vermingen and Hans Spahn, who roamed the streets of Dusseldorf making jokes at the Germans' expense. They sang along to the duo's summer hit, Bitte Bitte Ja, We're going to smash the Mannschaft in their own homeland, sang Henk and Harry in a silly mixture of Dutch and German. We were indoctrinated by our parents and grandparents, says Jake. Since everyone around you hated German, you started to hate them too. On the other hand, Bass and Jake lived in an increasingly internationalized world. In the relative Blackwater of Eldhoven, theirs was one of the first generations to move away from home, to travel. Aside from camping holidays to France and late-night drinking trips to Belgium, nobody ever really left the Netherlands back then. Even Interrail, which had existed since the early 1970s, was only just beginning to catch on. There was one older kid who had done Interrail when we were little, and he was basically considered to be Marco Polo, last pass. Football, though, made Bass and Jake a little more adventurous. In 1988, both secured tickets for Holland's third group game against Ireland in Gelsenkirchen. It was the game that would send the Dutch to the semi-finals, setting up their fateful meeting with West Germany. On June 18th, they crossed the German border alongside tens of thousands of other football fans, all clad head to toe in bright orange. Some called it an invasion, and the authorities were certainly on war footing. Hooliganism was rife in the 1980s, and ahead of the tournament, the Dutch Football Federation, KNVB, had sent letters to every ticket holder begging them to behave themselves and leave the fireworks to the team. As it happened, the Euro 88 Championship did see its fair share of violence. On the day before the Dutch played Ireland in Gelsenkirchen, there were 371 arrests as English and German hooligans clashed 50 kilometers further south in Dusseldorf. On the morning of the game, the TV news showed furious German shopkeepers boarding up their windows in fear for the riots. Three years later, the signatories of the Schengen Agreement had sat aboard the Princess Mary St. Astrid in the Moselle Valley and declared that the ever-closer union of Europe's peoples should find its expression in the freedom to cross internal borders. In football, it found its expression in organized brawls. Yet beyond the flashes of violence, another, more good-nurtured fan culture was also emerging at Euro 88. It was one of the first tournaments in which fans traveled en masse to support their national team. Dressed in bright and bizarre costumes, these supporters behaved more like festival goers than hooligans. The Danes had their red and white rolligans, complete with zany clapping hats, the Irish were a sociable green army, and the Dutch were obscenely, lovably, orange. 
Bass and Jakes were no exceptions. Before their trip to Germany, they went to the sports shop in Wildhoven, picked up a Hub Holland flag, and two orange caps adorned with the lion from the Dutch coat of arms. For the rest, they would have to improvise. Bass dug an old orange polo shirt from the back of the drawer and doubled it up with some striking three-quarter length orange jogging bottoms. Jake fashioned the bandana out of some bunting and sourced a top from an older relative. The t-shirt, orange, with a black lion printed on the left breast, was standard issue for young men doing military service. It was this cacophony of orange which tumbled into a Peugeot 505 GLD and set off for Gelsenkirchen on the morning of June 18th, joining a bottleneck of honking horns and orange flags at the border crossing in Venlo. Schengen has not yet been fully implemented. Between the Benelux countries, there was already passport-free travel. But to get to West Germany, you still had to pass an official checkpoint. It took quite a while to cross the border, remembers Bas. But we had We Are The Champions and another one bites the dust on repeat. So we were having fun. Once through, the Dutch invasion raced towards Gelsenkirchen, delighted in the Autobahn's lack of speed limits. Later, as they walked from the car to the stadium, the Dutch mingled with the traveling Irish fans. Among the Shamrock Green, there was also the black and red of AC Milan, the Italian club where Dutch stars Van Basde and Ruud Hulle played their club football. Others sported black dreadlock wigs in honor of Hulle, a long-haired midfielder of Surinamese descent. Yet from their spot behind the goal, Bass and Jake saw only one color. I felt like I was on top of an orange sea. It was unreal, remembers Bass. The football itself was a little more down-to-earth. It was a shit game. We just spent the whole thing waiting for the goal, says Bass. They waited for 82 minutes, until Dutch forward Wing Kieft finally sent a mistimed header into the Irish net. Behind the goal, Bass, Jake, and 14,000 others went mad. The Netherlands were in the semi-finals. Freddie Mercury seemed in an even fuller voice on the way home, and by the time they pulled into their hometown that evening, the Brown Peugeot had become a one-vehicle motorcade. They trundled around the lanes with Queen at full volume, draping the flag from the window and cackling in delight. Three days later, the whole village would join in the fun, as the Dutch beat West Germany in the semi-final and plunged the nation into ecstasy. The whole country went completely mad that night, says Bas. On Amsterdam's Leitzplein, people are said to have thrown bicycles in the air. In the stadium in Hamburg, Ronald Koeman swapped shirts with Germany's Olaf Stone and pretended, to the delight of the Dutch fans, to wipe his bottom on it. The poet Jules Dilders wrote that the victims of the war had risen from their grave as the German goalkeeper flapped in vain at Van Basten's last-minute goal. In the short term, the emotions of that evening would add fuel to the fire of the Dutch-German rivalry. Two years later, at the 1990 World Cup, Dutch star Franz Richard spat at the German striker Rudi Völler. Throughout the 1990s, hooligans clashed in cities and villages along the border, such as Kerkrade, Aachen, and Glanerburg. Yet in another way, Hamburg marked the beginning of the end of the hatred. By the late 1990s, journalist Paul Ockenhout was stunned to discover that Dutch players no longer saw Germany as their arch-rivals. In 2006, when a small Dutch business marketed orange Wehrmacht helmets for the World Cup in Germany, the KNVB banned fans from wearing them. There's no reason to bring the war into a football match, said spokesman Frank Huizinga. By that time, the continent had moved on. In 1988, the Erasmus Exchange Program had just come to the end of its inaugural year, and 3,000 people had taken part. In 2006, the number of participants was up to 150,000. Among Dutch students, Germany consistently ranked among the three most popular destinations. Even if the war stories were still being told, more and more young people were contrasting those stories with their own experiences. 
I hadn't traveled abroad much before 1988, only really to Luxembourg and Belgium, says Jake. Everybody just stayed in the area. Previous generations didn't even study in other cities, but Jake did. As a student in Maastricht, he saw the streets lined with flags as European leaders rolled into town to sign the EU's founding treaty in 1992. And like many, his views about Germans have long since softened. Nowadays, he crosses the border regularly to watch his favorite team, Borussia Dortmund, play in German Bundesliga. Three decades on from 1988, Bass once again has tickets for the Summer European Championships. On June 17, 2021, he hopes to take his sons to watch the Netherlands play Austria and Amsterdam. Yet depending on the coronavirus situation in the summer, they may not be allowed into the stadium. Euro 2020 was supposed to be a tournament for the new Europe, held not in one country, but in 12 different cities, from Baku Azerbaijan in the east, to London in the west, from Copenhagen in the north, to Rome in the south. It was to be the first truly international championship, a celebration of an open continent. Except history doesn't work like that. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, Euro 2020 is already happening a year late. If it goes ahead at all, it is likely that there will be a few fans in the stadiums and even fewer crossing borders to mingle with their European neighbors. There will be no orange army, no clapping hats. In perhaps the greatest irony of all, the final three games will take place in Britain, a country which has now left the European Union. As teenagers in 1988, Bass and Jake celebrated revenge over Germany. But they also took their first steps into an era of traveling and open borders. Three decades on, the continent is closing again. A new generation is emerging, whose experience of Europe is defined by Brexit, the refugee crisis, and the pandemic. Euro 2020 may well tell us something about this generation. Could it tell us something about the future of Europe? Did you like listening to this story? Dive into all our readouts from this issue or previous ones, or listen to our narrative Are We Europe stories wherever you get your earful of audio right now. And don't forget, you can also become an Are We Europe member and connect with storytellers across the continent starting at €4 Euros a month. Just go to areweeurope.com member and help us build a new media for a changing continent. That's areweeurope.com member.